I'll be honest with you, that's really what differentiates <clears throat> what you guys get on a regular basis and what most people get when they go to church. Um, uh, the modern Christian today doesn't really understand what Christianity is. They, they have a, they, they, they have a false, they, they come to it with a false pretense as if life all of a sudden changes because you're saved. Right? They just sang about, you know, when the home goes into chaos. Anybody in here ever felt that before? Anybody in here ever uh, have a situation in life and it's like you, had, you grasped it as hard as you possibly could, but no matter how hard you tried to grasp it, it was just still falling apart and you couldn't do anything to hold it together. And it was like, I guess we're just going to have to go through this, right? That's Christianity. No matter that, I'm sure glad God doesn't change when everything else in my life changes. Right? That's Christianity. I'm not, I have no illusions this morning of what Christianity is. If you have that illusion, guess what? When things get hard, you'll quit. You'll think that God sold you a bill of goods. You'll think that God did not make good on my promise. Because after all, every time I go to church, it's how to be a better me and, and how to have a better family and, and how to and how to. And every message that they preach is some how to. Okay. But what about that? What about that personal relationship that can that can that can endure when a child dies? Yeah. Had a buddy call me the other day. He's a pastor of a church, and he says uh, we were talking. He's like, "I'm on my way to the hospital. I just want to give you a buzz while I was heading up there." Uh, the young family in my church, probably 40s, somewhere around in there. Um, guy was uh, uh, he was a uh, he used to be a, a Wiccan. In a different country, he's a, I forget what country he said he was from, but uh, was steeped in their religion and, and wicked and that kind of thing, and um, and ended up getting out of it and ended up being in the Pentecostal movement because that's you know, I guess that's the that's the gateway. I don't really know, but uh, ends up there right. And uh, his wife of many years, a uh, bunch of kids, and she's in her forties, and she was having some trouble sleeping, had some headaches, went there and. She's got stage four brain cancer. They're bringing in psychiatrists to, you know, end of life stuff. And hopefully you don't feel like you're going to kill yourself and giving her anti-suicide medicine and all sorts of stuff. Life changes like that. You know what? That guy's got a relationship with the Lord that can stand that. Sometimes your relationship with God will get put to the test to see how serious you are. Right? That's why... That's why Getting in this book on a regular basis, right? And spending time every day on your face in front of God saying, Lord, this is where I belong. Will keep you in the right mindset when stuff happens in your life. Because guess what? Just because you're saved does not mean that you are void of problems. <laughs> it doesn't. It just means that you got somebody going through it with you. It just, it just means that you know that when this thing's all over, no matter the worst thing that can happen to me, where do I end up in heaven with Jesus forever? I end up with a sinless body and a sinless mind and, and, and perfection forever? I end up in a place where uh, I had not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man all the things that God had prepared for them that loved Him? You mean that place? Yeah, that's where I'm going. But here in the nasty now and now, things can, boy, they can take you for a spin. Right? And that's why we come here. That's why we have church. Right? 
We're not trying to garner some emotional response so that you come here and you're attracted to the emotion of it. You know what? You should be attracted to the substance that you get from the book, the substance that you get from the singing, the hymns. Those are all things that are designed to feed your soul. And guess what? The whole thing is designed to put your flesh down. Because after all, who wants to get out of bed on a morning that's, you know, zero degrees outside and roll out of bed and come here and get dressed and make it look like you're happy to be here, you know, with your suits and ties on and some of you rolling in here however you could get out. And praise the Lord you came. You don't have to wear a suit and tie. I'm glad you came, right? But the fact of the matter is, why do we do that? Because you put your flesh down. And when your flesh gets put down, maybe your spirit and your soul can get something. And that's hopefully what the Lord will do this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to a passage I have never heard preached before. And I'm not saying that because I think, well, I'm going to preach this for the first time. Somebody's probably preached this way better than I can, and I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, But turn to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5 this morning, as I was reading through my Bible and my daily Bible reading uh, a few days ago, I... uh, I came across some things in this passage and uh, couldn't shake them. And I saw some things come together and I thought, well, maybe this will be a help and a benefit. But I'll tell you, the passage is, uh, <laughs> is a little difficult. But if you have cable television or if your kids watch Netflix, you probably have no problem with what I'm about to read. So it is the Bible. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing uh, vulgar or anything like that that's, uh, that's, that's going to be brought out here this morning. But the subject matter... Uh, we, will, we will probably transcend the subject matter. So let's start in verse number 11. Verse number 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken in the, uh, with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Uh, or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she not be defiled. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley of meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, and an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity under remembrance." And the priest shall bring her near, and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take the holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle. And the priest shall take uh, and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, and uncover the woman's head, and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse. And the priest shall charge her by an oath and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. And if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, if thou be defiled and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath uh, say, uh, uh, with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee to a curse, and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot, and thy belly to swell. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels, to make thy belly to swell, and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, this morning, uh, 
maybe an obscure passage to some, a pretty rough passage for anybody who reads it. But Lord, I believe that there might be something in here for us here this morning. And so, Father, as we try to navigate this passage, I pray, Father, that you put your hand on me and help me to preach. Father, I pray you'd wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ and give me strength and give me uh, the understanding, Lord, that is needed to uh, dissect this passage. And Father, I pray that all that have come out here this morning would not have rolled out of bed and, and got dressed and fought the cold to get here in vain. Father, I pray that we leave here with a little bit something that we can hang our hat on, a little bit of something that will help us down the road a little further, draw us just a little bit closer to you and help us in our everyday life. And so as we open this, this time, we pray that you would have the full preeminence and, God, that you would deal with people as you see fit. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, probably not a passage that you hear too often uh, read out loud in church. Right. I remember I, I read this passage when I was familiar with it in Bible college. And of course, you, you saw the, the ending of the passage here where it talks about the, uh, the woman who takes part of this uh, offering. And if she's guilty, it causes her belly to swell and her thigh to rot. Well, I was working at a Chick-fil-A one time down in Pensacola and uh, there was a girl there and uh, she was my supervisor, which. Uh, whatever, you know, and uh, so she, she I walk I walk from the kitchen into the front and nobody was in the store at the time. And she was doing this stupid dance. This is before TikTok dances were a thing. So this was the stupid dance of the time. And she was sticking her leg out and doing something dumb. And I was just like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm doing the stanky leg. <laughs> Anybody ever heard of that before? Don't raise your hand. You'll, you'll, yeah, praise the Lord. None of you have ever heard that before, nor should you go look it up. Amen. But she was doing this dance and she's like, yeah, they call it the stanky leg. I was like, that's in the Bible. She was like, what? I said, yeah, the stanky leg, it's in the Bible. She's like, where is that in the Bible? I said, when a woman commits adultery on her husband and uh, they have to put the bitter water in there and it causes her thigh to rot, it's a stinky leg. <laughs> She's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> I thought it was clever. I mean, you know, I was like, yeah, there we go. That's a good one, right? But uh, this passage is showing us an, uh, an offering, and there's many offerings set up in the Bible. Of course, you know that. And this particular offering is for a very specific scenario that can take place in a marriage. And it's called the jealousy offering. The jealousy offering. And you know something? Uh, it's funny because jealousy is a, is a pretty wild subject when you start to break it down in Scripture. You know that? I believe every one of you in here know what it's like to be filled jealous. I believe everybody in here at one time, and that spirit of jealousy has overtaken you in some way, shape, or form, and you get that thing that comes with it, and you just like feel uneasy, you feel angry, and you feel like you got to react, and you got to do something. That, that spirit of jealousy can overtake somebody. And here's the thing. The definition of jealousy is basically just this, not, worry, uh, says not wanting to share something or someone you love or care for. That's pretty fair, right? My first knee-jerk reaction was, was how does jealousy compare to envy? Right? Because a lot of people say it's the same thing. Well, it is not. <laughs> it is not the same thing. Envy is rooted in covetousness. Envy is rooted in as I look at my neighbor and he gets a new car, right? And you go, man, I like that new car, right? But 
Jealousy is when he comes over and invites your wife and kids to go for a ride, and then they start riding around with your neighbor in his new car, and then they come back and say, oh, daddy, our neighbor, he's so wonderful, and we love his new car. And you're like, that's jealousy. <laughs> right? That's jealousy. Because now you feel like the affection that those that you care for is now being diverted where you think that affection and that love and that admiration should be given to you. You then see them give that to somebody else and you go, wait a minute, that's not for you to have, that's mine. Right? That's my wife. Those are my kids. Those are my friends. And you're taking them away from me. That is the spirit of jealousy. That is where envy differentiates itself from jealousy. Now, a demonstration. Jealousy is different from envy also in that every time envy shows up, it's bad. But jealousy is not always bad. Some of you would do good to be jealous in some things in your life. I think that the society in which we live in today is far too open Far too open with relationships and friendships and all these kinds of things. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's like you just let the things that you care for just willy-nilly get exposed to whatever they want to get exposed to. I think maybe you should be a little more jealous of the things you care about in your life and hold them and protect them just a little bit. That would do us good. Now listen, jealousy, or excuse me, uh, jealousy, uh, just to show you how it's in a good thing, it's a picture of God if you weren't aware the Bible tells you over there in, in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 that he says, I am a jealous God. Obviously, that's not a bad attribute if it's God's attribute. Not only that, over in Exodus 34, 14, he says he calls his name jealous. His name is jealous. He is a jealous God. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament that the children of Israel will provoke him to jealousy and provoke him to jealousy and I will destroy you out of the fire of my jealousy. That's God being jealous over his people. You see, it, uh, you see that jealousy can be a method of protection. Paul states that over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I am jealous over you, talking about his people and the, the, he's, his converts and the folks that he's ministered to in the churches. He says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. That's, that's a man that has ministered to people and he's watching the carnality of the world and you think about what his tone was in the book of Galatians when he could stand at the, at the, at the base there and talk to those people at the, uh, at, uh, at the church in Galatia and say, who has bewitched you? Who has taken you away from the things that you first received? And he says, though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let that person be accursed. You say, what harsh words for a preacher. What did he say? Basically, if anybody tells you anything else than what you receive from me, let them go to hell. That's what he said. Yep. Well, that's harsh for a preacher to talk like that. Not if you're jealous over your people that you've ministered to. Why? Because you don't want some knucklehead coming in and teaching them something that's not scriptural. So you know what you do? You get fangs and the stinking hair on the back stands up and your cackles get raised and you go, shut your mouth. Don't allow those people to influence you. That's why you see people come in here and sometimes they have their own agendas. Because it's not easy to get a hundred something people in one stinking room together consistently. It's not easy to do that. 
So when you do that, everyone says, well, hey, I can't do that on my own. So you know what I'll do? I'll come into a church and I'll just have an agenda and I'll just want to just make people think like I think and usurp the authority that's in the church. You say, what is that? That's natural. You say, what is that? That's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? And a shepherd who's jealous over his flock will protect his flock from people that have those agendas. And sometimes you'll see and you'll say, oh, he's just being mean. He's not being mean. What's he doing? He's being jealous after you with godly jealousy. And that's a good thing. You should have that in your family. Amen. You should protect your wife and protect your kids. What? With jealousy. Right? Ain't nobody coming in here and having influence on my kids. You know some of the things we talk about uh, with my kids and stuff like that? They come home and I say, listen, there's no such thing as secrets in this house. The only people allowed to have secrets with you is your parents. Other kids at school, you don't have secrets with them. You want to know why? Because secrets cause problems. Amen? Hey, nobody, nobody, uh, nobody is allowed to do this with you, and no one's allowed to do that. And listen, we talk about that kind of stuff. Why? I'm jealous over my kids. I'll influence my kids. I don't need somebody else doing it. You understand? Hallelujah. <laughs> How about this? It's used to provoke somebody to a good thing. You see that in uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, God talks about the putting away of Israel. When I say putting away, I mean the putting aside for a short amount of time, which is the church age in which you and I live in. In the Old Testament, he's dealing completely with the Jew. And now that the gospel and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, you guys all know this, Throughout uh, the, uh, after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have the book of Acts, which is a transitional book. And he, says, and he says, now salvation is not exclusively to the Jew, but now it's opened up to the Gentile and the Jew, and they'll save the same way. Acts chapter 15, the council at Jerusalem, right? And the apostolic signs end at the end of the book of Acts. And now we have a church age where you and I reside and all of us are saved the same way. doesn't matter what your background is. You say, why did he do that? He told you at the end of Romans chapter 11. Why? To provoke them to jealousy. That was God's motive. Back in the Old Testament, he, uh, when the nation of Israel was acting up, he took the nation of Israel and he set them aside and let them to go after their enemies. And he says, I will provoke them to jealousy with a foolish nation. Because nothing provokes the, uh, the nation of Israel more than when they know that they're the chosen people. They are the apple of God's eye. And then all of a sudden he spends all this time with a bunch of Gentile dogs. Right? He's trying to make them jealous. Because you want to know why he's making them jealous? Because there's going to come a time here, not before too long, all of you in here is going to hear a trumpet sound, and we're going to get out of this stinking place. And then all of a sudden, guess what? The door opens back up to the Jews, and they say, we done messed up. He was our Messiah the whole time, and they got to go through the tribulation time, and you ain't going to be there for it. And he's provoking them to jealousy in a good thing. But... And we all know this, although that there's a good side to it, we also know there's a bad side to it because not only is it a picture of God, not only is it a means of protection and is it, uh, uh, is it a means to, uh, uh, to provoke someone to good works, jealousy can also be very petty. Anybody say an amen to that? No, you're not. <laughs> Everyone's looking down right now. Why are y'all looking down for? <laughs> jealousy can be petty. You can be jealous of stupid things, right? You can be jealous of folks you shouldn't be jealous of. 
I know guys, man, they, they, uh, they, they're, 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 they got their wife on such a short leash. Heaven forbid she uh, say hello to somebody. <laughs> right? And it's like, oh my goodness, I got to reel her in, you know. You rule your house with an iron fist. You're on the other side of the spectrum. What is that? You're petty. You're petty. You want to know what it's a sign of? It's a sign of your insecurity with yourself. I'm trying to be nice this morning. We're gonna... <laughs> it's a sign of insecurity. When you're not secure in your own abilities, if you're not secure in your own manhood, if you're not secure in what it is that you're doing, you know what you're going to do? You're going to become jealous of people that you feel are infiltrating your life and are going to interject in your life the way you don't want to. And the minute you think you're losing control, you get jealous and you get mad. That's how, that's how jealousy is demonstrated in the Bible. You say, well, how, how is it demonstrated? What about Joseph and his brothers? Right? Here's Joseph. He's, uh, he's his daddy's favorite. Gets the coat of many colors and all this stuff. And what happens? His brothers get jealous. His brothers get jealous. And they create this big plan to, uh, to take Joseph out. What about this? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Here's Abel. What's he doing? Just what he knows to do to please God. And God shows, God shows, uh, 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 God acknowledges his offering and he rejects Cain's offering. And what happened? Cain got jealous. Which brings me to my third thing. Jealousy, there's a danger in jealousy. You know what the Bible tells you in Proverbs? That jealousy, listen, is the rage of man. Jealousy is the rage of man. It says, and he will not hold back in the day of vengeance. Say, why is that important? Because the Bible tells you that vengeance is of the Lord. The Bible tells you, you shouldn't worry about seeking vengeance. But see, when you're ate up with jealousy, that rage naturally comes with it. You want to do an interesting Bible study, look up the word jealous and then watch how many times fury, rage, and fire, and wrath are associated to that word. That's what naturally comes out of you when you get overtaken with a spirit of jealousy. You look to lash out. You look to regain control. You look to destroy whatever it is that's causing your jealousy. And God says, it's the rage of man. And he will not hold back when it comes to the day of vengeance. The problem is, you're not the one that's supposed to execute vengeance. God will do that in his time. And so... If people have a problem with jealousy, they tend to have a problem with their anger. And if people have a problem with their anger, you probably have some pretty weak relationships. You think they're strong because they're afraid of you. But the minute they have an option to go or stay, they will choose to go. Because you really don't have their respect, you have their fear. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You see, everything in the Christian life is a balance. You can be jealous in a, in up to a good point, but then you can be jealous over here, and it causes all kinds of problems. Cause all kinds of problems. There's a couple things in this passage I want to point out about jealousy this morning, and hopefully you'll get some help out of it. Obviously, can I say this? We don't have a jealousy offering anymore. <laughs> If you got a problem with your wife, gentlemen, do not come up to pastor and be like, hey, I'd like for you to make up some water for her to drink, and I want to see the truth. 
We ain't doing that. <laughs> that ain't a part of what this is. But there's some practical things that I can see about jealousy and the people that are involved in it that I think we could learn from. First thing I want to show you here is in verse number 13. I want you to take note of the actions of the accused. In verse number 13, it says, And if he be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witnesses against her, neither she be taken with the manner. Can I say this? This jealousy that her husband is feeling did not just come out of nowhere. Right? There was actions in this woman's life that caused him to become suspicious of her behavior. And so, if, uh, if you are in a position where you answer to somebody, there's a good chance that maybe you have to be careful of how you act. Okay, let me, let me just, before we break down completely... Uh, and say, well, see, there he is, the male chauvinist pig. I can't believe he just said that. Can we just divorce it from the, can we divorce it from the, the husband and wife for just a second? And can you see that in the Bible, the husband represents a position of authority and the wife represents a, uh, 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 a position of submission? Can we all agree to that and not go crazy? Amen. Thank you. I would love the class participation this morning. Everyone's looking at me like, where are you going? <laughs> Listen, you have to be careful, right? Because your actions can be perceived a certain way. Is that fair? Is that fair? Your actions can be perceived a certain way. You want to know something? I mean, her husband became suspicious by watching different things in her life. And all of a sudden, as we saw in verse 13, things were secretive. Things were not done above board. There was some shady stuff going on. Why was she here when she said she was going to be there? And, and I told her that she probably shouldn't hang out with this group over here, but I find her you know, coming back and I looked at her cell phone and there was text messages from so-and-so and I'm thinking, what in the world's going on here? I don't understand this. I thought that you weren't hanging out with so-and-so anymore. What is going on? And can I tell you this? If those types of things were showing up in this woman's life, he had every right to be suspicious of what his wife was doing. Just like you. And all of a sudden your parents say, I want to see your cell phone. You can't see my cell phone. Why? What are you hiding? How come, how come everything is this cryptid answer when someone asks you a question? Huh? How come you can't have a straight answer? How come you can't, you know, just like, uh, you know, be open with where you're at, what you're doing with those that are in authority over you? You want to know why I think a lot of people get fired from jobs? It's because they don't even realize that their actions are telling a story that they don't even realize they're telling. Right? Like your boss asks you a question and you're just like vague. You show up to work late, right? Things that they you know, were put into your hand to do, the responsibilities, they weren't done all the way. And it's like, in your mind, you're like, well, I'm just doing the best I can. And your boss is like, well, this person's obviously checked out, right? And they get fired. Well, I don't know why I got fired. There's no reason I got fired. Maybe your actions were telling a story you didn't realize they were telling. Kids, that happens with parents all the time. 
husbands and wives. That happens in a marital relationship all the time. Do you ever consider that your actions may be telling a story that you don't know what it's actually saying? Listen, there's never been a time because individualism is the new religion that people are more, they're, 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 so, they're, they're so far away from being self-aware of what their actions are actually telling people. And you know, that's the opposite of how we are supposed to react. The Bible tells us to walk circumspectly. The Bible tells us that we should be considering those around us and what our actions are portraying to other people. Right? Obviously, she did not have that in her mind. And there were some things that had taken place that was causing her husband to question her fidelity and question her commitment to him. She displayed signs of guilt. And then if you, if you see this thing, as he begins this process, you know what she would have had to have done? Continually deny her guilt. You know what the modern woman today would have done. <laughs> Honey, where have you been? Honey, I saw a text message on your phone, and I just uh, wonder where. Who are you to tell me? You don't own me. Right? You ain't got no authority over me. Sound familiar? Turn on any, turn on any, turn on any entertainment, news, social media. That's the spirit of the age. You have no right to accuse me. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to call out any of my behavior. That's none of your business. Can I say that that same attitude has permeated the churches too? You have no, you have no position to ask me or tell me nothing. Right? Right? But anybody in here who's a member of this church, you had to be voted in as a member of this church, right? And in so doing, we have constitution bylaws of how we conduct ourselves. Now listen, this is not a cult. We don't send cameras home. We don't have like a, 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 a run and tally of who shows up and who doesn't. That's weird. Okay? That's weird. Well, you know what? If you miss three Sundays in a row and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, man, been missing you. Where you been? Well, I don't know why you're putting pressure on me. What are you talking about? I thought we wanted to encourage each other in a good thing. Well, everybody's putting pressure on me. Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel like everybody's looking at you? Why do you feel that? Is it maybe because your actions are causing an internal response? And now all of a sudden you think everybody's judging you and you think everybody's after you and everybody's trying to nitpick your life. Why is that? You guilty of something? No, I'm not doing anything. Just deny it. Just deny it. Just deny it. Just deny it. Everything okay? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. How's the family? They're fine. Everything's fine. Nothing's wrong. Stop looking into this. And they deny and they deny and they deny and they deny. You know what? People who are guilty deny everything. So how do you know? I was a corrections officer, man. I have never met a guilty, guilty person in jail. Never. Everybody ever come into jail, they're like, I didn't do it, man. I'm seeing cops. They planted it on me. Sir, you ran away from police and beat them with an iron. Uh, yeah, but they started it. 
Sir, they found 20 pounds of uh, marijuana in your trunk. Somebody else, somebody else said, I was just renting the car. <laughs> right? There's a girl one time, she was locked up. We were doing jail check one night, and she said, uh, she said Officer Biano. I said, yes, ma'am. She says, I, when I get out of here, I'm going to write a book of how I'm a, I'm a, I, am a, uh, I am a product of my circumstances. And I said, no, you're a product of possessing methamphetamine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you are. It's not your circumstances. It's the fact that you had meth on you and you made a conscious decision that I want to smoke meth because it makes me feel good and now you're in jail. So that's what that is. <laughs> right? Deny, 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 deny. Just the fact that you deny guilt doesn't mean you're innocent. Right? There's no church police. But can I just admonish you in this? What is your actions telling people? Is your actions, is your actions to your parents showing you that you're about to like head out of Dodge? Does your actions uh, to your spouse show that you're just kind of over it and yeah, we've been married for a while and she's okay and I'm okay and you know, is that how your actions? Well, you may not feel that way. Whether the Bible doesn't say if she's guilty or not, this is a they don't know at this point, right? But the problem is, is her behavior is shady, right? And sometimes we may not be guilty. Maybe that's not actually how we feel, but our actions are telling somebody else that story, and they're becoming jealous because of how we're acting. Does that make sense? And so. Finally, on this point here, you see that you can be deceived by guilt. You know that there was women that went through this ceremony and they denied and denied and denied and denied. And you know what? This process was a brutal process. This wasn't just go drink a cup of dirty water and then all of a sudden everything's done. They would put this woman on trial. They would take her before the priests and they would, they would basically interrogate her as if she was a criminal. And she would have to go through all this process, right? And the whole time she would have to deny, I never did that. I never did that. That never happened. And she would go from day after day after day to this process all the way up to the point where they put that earthen vessel in her hand and it's 30 pounds, and they make her hold it as they do all the oaths and all the ceremony. And she's holding it and her arms are burning. And they take her covering off. And she's sitting there. And that covering was a, was a, uh, was a uh, symbol of her, of, her, um, of her submission to her husband. And it was a, it was a uh, statement of her purity. And her faithfulness to her husband. And they remove that from her. And she's holding that and they're saying, would you like to tell us the truth? Would you like to tell us the truth? Because once you drink this drink, there is no turning back. And it's done for you if you're lying. And you know what happened? There was women that said, nope, didn't do it. Nope, didn't do it. Nope, didn't do it. And then guess what? Their belly started to swell and their thigh rotted. You want to know the problem? If there's stuff going on in your life and nobody can see it and you think you've hid it from everybody else, can I tell you this? You, your actions are telling a story. And you think you've hid it from everybody around you? Can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? You can be deceived by that guilt. You can be deceived by that guilt. 
It never happened. Never took place. Never happened. You can tell yourself a lie so many times you'll believe it. You ever done that? You ever rewrite history in your life and told an account of a situation that happened uh, a certain way so many times and now you think it's set in stone, but if you really look back at it, you know that didn't happen that way, did it? You want to know why? Because you're deceived by the fact that you've told a lie to yourself so many times. There's people, listen, there's people who will take their guilt to the grave. They would rather die than tell you they messed up or tell you that they got this thing in their life they don't want to get rid of. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Amen. That's a Benjamin. But can I, can I let me just put it on the other flip side here. What if, what if you were innocent and somebody was accusing you of being guilty? Isn't that a horrible position to be in? Anybody in here have been accused of something you didn't do? Anybody in here have been put on trial by people that you care about and been like, why are you thinking this way about me? I didn't do this. Right? How do you react when you're accused of something that you know in your heart of hearts you did not do? Well, we find that lesson here too. Can I say this? The first thing you got to do if that's you is you're going to have to first and foremost identify. Identify with what? Identify any culpability that you had for their reaction. You see, the majority the, 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 the day is, is if you actually didn't do anything and, something, and somebody has an opinion, then I have to address that and I have to argue with them and we have to break fellowship and everything has to blow up and the family blows up and the relationship blows up and the friendship blows up because after all, you are, you are wrong and I am right. But if you could be the mature one and say, okay, well, let me identify if I have any culpability in this. Right? Maybe, maybe I did do this and I can see how that would cause you to think that. Right? Maybe there was something that I was doing that would cause you to think ill of me and for that I'm sorry. But see, we don't do that. We fight till the death. Right? They were wrong. I was right. I never did that. Can you identify any part that you had in that circumstance at all? Can you identify any part? Right? How about this? Disengage. Disengage. If that's the case, somebody's already locked in. If you're innocent, don't argue. Christ, as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. They were falsely accusing him and he didn't say a word. You ever read through that and said, why in the world is he not telling them who he is? Because the matter is, they've already had their mind made up. It didn't matter how much he told them, they already had their mind made up. Can I tell you this? If someone's got their mind made up about you, there is no amount of evidence you can pull out that's going to change their mind. Amen. So you, what do you do? You disengage. You disengage. And finally, you know what you do? You endure. You, what, do you, what do you do? You go through the process. You go through the process, you go through the questioning, you go through the humiliation, you go through uh, the holding of this and the pain that comes with holding that, that earthen vessel and burning in your arms and all that kind of stuff. You endure that because at the end of that thing, you will be proven innocent and not guilty. 
You understand that there's some schisms in the body that can only be solved with time? There's a certain situation in my life uh, several years ago, and uh, some people said some things about me to some folks that I respect very highly, and the people that I respect very highly took their side and not mine. And I was shunned, <laughs> right? And can I say this? I had to come to terms with the fact of I was young when this all went down. And there were some things that I said as a young preacher and as a young Christian that guess what? I can totally see why somebody would have accused me of what they accused me of because of some of the things that was coming out of my mouth. My intentions were not those things, but I didn't know the difference because I was young. And guess what? I was stupid. Because typically when you're young, you also suffer with a little thing called ignorance. That's normal. Right? That's normal. And you know what I realized? I had to stop defending myself every time the conversation came up. Because that's the knee-jerk reaction. So-and-so mentions it, you're like, yeah, well, let me tell you the whole story. You know what I had to do? Disengage. Because all I'm doing by engaging in that is perpetuating the problem. That's it. I'm just meeting force with force, and it's just going to continue to escalate, and nobody will get help. And you know what? It's been about 12 years. It's been about 12 years since that happened. And you want to know something? Still kind of there, still kind of not, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? There's a track record of 12 years of preaching, teaching, being in church, raising a family, doing this kind of this stuff. And you know what? Those guys that accuse me, they're not around anymore. You see what I'm saying? This wasn't immorality. This wasn't anything like that. It was a ministerial thing, right? And you want to know something? had to learn that sometimes it takes time to fix some of those things. If you're the one that's being accused. And then somebody's like, well, where's your loyalty? Where's this, that, and the other? Okay, well, time will have to tell. Time will have to tell. That's how you handle those kinds of situations. Let me quickly give you another one here. The attitude of the accuser. Can you imagine the husband? I'm sure the situation could have manifested itself in many different emotions. Sure, he was angry. I'm sure he was anxious. A wife and whom he loved, why in the world would she step out on him? He was sad. He was distraught. Feelings of betrayal. Questions in his mind. After all I've done for her, after how I've protected her, after I've provided for her, after the children that we've had, how could she possibly do this to me? Disgust. That just that pit in your stomach of how could you do this? Why would you do this? The ultimate betrayal is when a wife or a, or a spouse steps out on the other. Fewer things are more heinous of a crime than that. Because of the vows that were given and the commitments that were made and then the, de the, the decline of that relationship that would lead up to that infidelity taking place. It's a horrible thing. And if you know anybody who's ever gone through it, you'll know how horrible it is. So much so that it's one of the very, it's one of the only three grounds for divorce a Bible believing Christian has. Right? 
Amen. Read 1 Corinthians 7. It's there, I promise. But can I, can I just... Can I just remind you that she was not caught in the act? There was no real evidence that she had done anything wrong because if there had been, Leviticus chapter number 20 already gives you the repercussions of that sin, and that is they're going to die, right? So there was no real evidence. And so the attitude of the one that is doing the accusing should be hopefully optimistic that they're wrong, right? Or do we sometimes identify with the position of we become extremely angry and there is no appeasing our wrath? Are you trying to fix the relationship or are you trying to be right? That is the question. I'm talking about the attitude of that man that was accusing. Surely, I'm sure he doesn't want to find out that his wife has actually done such a heinous act. I know I wouldn't want to hear that. If that thought ever crossed my mind, I would want me, I would want me to be wrong. But so many times when that, jeal- that spirit of jealousy overtakes us, there's only one side of the spectrum that we're on, and that's the unappeasable side of wrath. And we do not have the emotional discipline to tell ourselves, hey, relax, we don't know all the facts but we run off of half-truths and we run off of assumptions and we destroy things because we're so emotionally immature in how we deal with one another. Right? He was, can I say he was not without consequence? You realize that if he was found out to have not, uh, that, that the wife was not guilty, that it was a disgrace to the husband that he would put his wife through that and it was a sign that he did not have control of his own home and he would be ostracized and he would be looked down on and he would be ridiculed by his peers because after all how come you can't provide a place where your wife can safely rest in you and she doesn't have to go look for somebody else and she's not running around doing things that she's not supposed to be doing and your kids are not doing this don't you know that's why God could tell Abraham things he tells you back in uh, Genesis he says because look at how he handles his house You see, back in those days, a man taking care of business at home was still a priority. And so there was consequences for him to be wrong. And you know what? There's some times, listen, there's some times, practically, what do you do when you see someone you love engaging in questionable behavior? You don't have any proof they're doing anything wrong, but you're just like, you're scratching your head. What do you do? What do you do? How do you handle that? Do you become the spiritual police? Do you become the holier than thou that looks for the skews in everybody's life so that you can can capitalize on them and be the one that's constantly reproving everybody? No. No, you don't. For one, you better be careful because guess what? Just like him, there's consequences for people like that. And it's like, how come you always got your nose out of joint with somebody? How come you always feel like somebody's trying to take away from you what you love the most? How come you're always jealous of other people? You don't want to get that reputation. You don't want that. You know what you should do? It's in that point that we see the importance of church. You know what you find out? You see there in, uh, in, in verse uh, number 15 that he takes him to the priest, that he has to take her to the priest. Thank God that there's, there's a place 
listen, for some spiritual stability in your life, and that's the local church. That's why God put this thing here, so that you could have some stability in your family in a spiritual sense that, yeah, you got stability in your kids going to school, and you got stability in your job, and you got stability in the government that's around you and the laws that are around you. You have all these structural things in your life that allow you to keep things in, in control. Well, you need spiritual structure in your life, and that's why church is here. It's to help with those things. And when you see somebody that's questionable, have they been in church? Are they exposing themselves to the right kind of stuff? It's not that the church is the arbiter of your, in, of your uh, familiar pro- uh, problems. That's not the case. But this is the place that you have spiritual structure and you can build it in your home. And then you can take the things that you get from church and you can implement them at the home. And you realize that if the home matches the church, a lot of your problems would go away. Amen. We see the importance of prayer. Notice in verse number 15, it says that he brought her offering. He brought her offering. She didn't bring it herself. Her husband had to bring it for her. And there's sometimes when you see people in your life not doing the things that you think that they should be doing, you know what? It's not time to just like call them on the phone and tell them and give them a piece of your mind. Maybe it's time for you to hit an altar. And send up the offering for them. And say, God, I don't know what's going on. And I, 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 I don't want to really interject myself here. They're old enough to make their own decisions now. Uh, you know, I can't control. Hey, listen, I can't control. Listen, I can't control my wife. I can't control my husband. Go ahead and think that you can control your wife's spiritual relationship with God. You can't do it. She's got to want it herself. Well, what if you reckon that your wife doesn't have one? How many times have you been on an altar praying about it? You say, my kids are older, they don't have one. How many times have you been on an altar praying about it? She didn't bring her own offering. Her husband brought it for her. You see the importance of prayer. We don't pray for stuff like we should anymore. And then we complain about when things go wrong. You know that prayer does change things, right? Prayer does work. Prayer is actually a useful tool in your life. And the importance of relinquishing control. What does he say in verse number 16? And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. You know what you realize? You cannot change anyone. God has to change them. And there's going to be people in your life and you see, see, see things in their life and you think in your, in your own vision, in your own way, they're like, well, it didn't work for me. Well, maybe it won't work for you the same way it worked for them. You have to be honest with yourself. Just because you did it a certain way doesn't mean that somebody's going to do it the same way. So it's better for you to keep your mouth shut and give them over to the Lord because maybe it'll work out. Or if there is something fundamentally wrong with what they're doing, the Lord has to be the one that takes care of the problem. You see that? You have to give them over to the Lord. God, you're going to have to deal with them. God, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to touch their heart. God, you're going to have to change them. I can't change them. The more you try to change people, the more that you... Because here's our knee-jerk reaction. Let me, let me just clamp down even more. That's your jealousy talking. That's you thinking you're losing control of something that you really can't control. And so... Parents, we lock down our kids. Husbands, you lash out against your wives. Moms, do it to this. Different relationships, do it to that. And you 
lash out and, and crimp down and you're grounded and you're this. And you're, I'm not saying you shouldn't discipline your kids and ground them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that sometimes we respond to when we think that they're doing something we don't understand. We double down and we try to hold them. You can't change them and they're probably going to be more mad at you than what you want and it's going to drive them further away. You'd be better off leaving them into the hand of the Lord, keeping them in church the best you can and staying on your face rather than you trying to take hold of the situation. Is this helping this morning? I'm trying to hurry. The last thing, and it'll be quick. We see the antidote for the situation in verse 17. And the priest shall take holy water in the earthen vessel and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, and the priest shall take and put it into the water. Pretty unique uh, concoction here. He takes water from the laver that is in the uh, tabernacle, and then he goes into the tabernacle and he takes the dust from the floor of the tabernacle and he mixes that into a cup, and that is the potion, if you will, that she drinks. That is the truth serum that she drinks. You say, what is it that will help somebody what is it that will bring the truth out? What is it that will, that will uh, change somebody? It shows you this in the passage. Holy water. What does the Bible tell you about that? By the washing of the water of the word. Holy water. And from dust. You say, what is that? You're made out of dust. From dust thou art, from dust thou shalt return. You say, you know the two things that you're going to have to learn to ingest if you want to change? If you want somebody to change, you know the two things that they have to ingest, that you have to intake? You have to intake the truth of the Word of God, and you have to intake the truth about who you really are. And if you can stomach those two things, you'd be surprised what God can do. But those are a bitter cup to drink. Especially if you know that you're not doing what you should be doing. And your life doesn't match up to the way God would have your life to match up. And so, if your life is sitting over here and you say, well, this is what my life is. And then you see a direct thing over here where the Bible says you shouldn't do this. How do those things mix? You know what it does? It causes bitterness in your stomach. It causes problems. Internal problems that have external circumstance or external um, effects. You see that? And then you wonder why some people have horrible anxiety and some people have horrible stomach issues. Do you ever think maybe because you're trying to live two lives and it's wearing you stinking out? Because you want to know something? There was no magic in that cup. There was no magic in the cup. They didn't, the priest didn't put no poison in there. And what it was was two elements that will not kill you. You know what? God, listen, it was a supernatural thing. And God brought it out. And listen, if you put those things in place, God will do the rest. If you put those two things in place, God will do the rest. The truth of the Word of God, the truth about who you are. And you've got to be honest with yourself about it. You know the saddest part of this passage here? Is if you got to this point as that woman, it was too late. Because the minute you ingested that, if you were lying, you're dead. You want to know the blessing of today? You want to know what I see the spiritual application of this passage? 
You know what the Bible likens a husband and a wife relationship to in Ephesians chapter 5? The relationship between us and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. And you want to know something? I wonder, just wonder this morning, if God is jealous over you. What if God took an inventory and a, and a snapshot of your life? Because we know that God sees everything. There's no secrets from Him. There were secrets kept from the husband in the passage, but there's no secrets kept from Jesus Christ. Suppose God's in heaven today. Would He say, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy? Because that love and affection that's supposed to be solely given to Jesus Christ, but yet some other thing in this world has got your attention and your love and your devotion, and it's provoking your Savior to jealousy. Is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ jealous of you this morning? Let me ask you something. Is your actions causing suspicion on His end? Forget about me. Forget about preacher. Forget about the church. Forget about it for just a second. It's not about the church right now. It's about you and Jesus Christ. You miss a lot of church. You're missing this. You, you uh, not reading your Bible. How come he hasn't talked to you in so long? I thought you're supposed to love him. I thought, that was your, I thought you were his bride and he was going to be, you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the type. Do you talk to him? Well, don't you think if a husband was sitting there and his wife stopped talking to him, maybe he thinks she's talking to somebody else? Hey, listen, have, have, have you listened to him? Have you, been, have you been reading what he's given you to read? That's his words to you. If your wife all of a sudden just stopped listening to you and every time you talked, she turned away and didn't want to talk to you anymore, do you think that maybe there was something wrong? You think maybe that would pique his suspicion? Christians, this morning, we have a subservient role to our authority. And sometimes we can provoke him to jealousy by the things that we partake in and the things that we do in this life. And can I say this? A lot of times we don't even realize what our actions are saying. And this passage is showing us that, listen, thank God, none of us are going to get brought up in front of a tribunal and made to drink something that can cause our insides to just flat out gush out and die. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. But can I tell you this? There's going to come a day whether by death or rapture, you're going to have to give an account of all the things that were done in your body, whether they be good or bad. And there's going to come a day, whether now or in eternity, where you're going to have to face the truth of the Bible and the truth of who you really are. And the sham that you've been displaying or the fact that you are doing the best that you can, only God knows that. I don't know that. But can I tell you this? There's coming a day when you stand before God in judgment. Yeah, you'll still go to heaven. No, you don't have to worry about going to hell. But can I say this? You're going to wish that you had done it here and not waited until you got there. You're going to wish that you had the stomach to take the truth and to realize who you are and the sham or the, or the, 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 the false uh, mask that you were portraying to everybody else. And you're going to wish that you had gotten that thing straight here and so that you could have something to show for your life here on this earth. So I wonder this morning, are you provoking your God to jealousy? 
It's a horrible thing to think about the different lessons we, we, we saw in this passage and how it ends. It doesn't have to end that way for you. You know what you can do? You can say, Lord, I need some help. <laughs> Lord, I want to take care of this thing now. Lord, I want to keep going. Lord, I'm struggling, but Lord, I can get, I can get better. Lord, hey, I just want to let you know I still love you, and you're still the apple of my eye, and I don't ever want to provoke you to jealousy. Would you do that this morning? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. I pray you'd be with your people here now. As we have a piano player come, we won't sing. But if maybe the Lord spoke to you this morning, maybe you would step out of your pew and come down to this altar and say, Hey, Lord, I, I haven't been talking to you like I should. God, I've... I've cut my ear off from listening to you, Lord. I'm not even listening to preaching. I'm just here sometimes and I'm just going through the motions and God, my relationship with you isn't what it should be. And I wonder if God was like this man in the passage. Would he be suspicious of your loyalty to him? Would he be suspicious of your love for him based on your attention given to other things in your life? Let's just take a minute. We'll just bow our heads. Our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed. Some folks are at the altar praying. We'll just take a quick minute. And then we'll get to go. I know I went long this morning trying to get this out. But I feel like this could really help. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, the question is asked... Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Paul asked that question. And let me ask that question to you this morning. Do you provoke the Lord to jealousy this morning? You say, Brother Joe, my relationship's never been better. In my Bible, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm struggling like, just like everybody else. But man, I'm sure my relationship with God, we're, we're together. Praise God for you this morning. Keep it up. Keep it up. And that ain't you. Say, Lord, Brother Joe, I, I have not <laughs> been doing what I should be doing. My Bible reading ain't what it should be. My prayer life isn't what it should be. My relationship with God is not better than it was when I first got saved and not better than it was before. <coughs> and I'm struggling. Why don't you come tell him that you're still dedicated? Why don't you come tell him, hey, Lord, I, I love you. Some folks still praying. We'll wait. It's no problem. That's why we come to church. We hear preaching, and then we respond when God speaks to us. That's normal.
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for each and every person that got up and made the decision in spite of the cold and in spite of the weather. Lord, to roll out of bed this morning and get bundled up and come to church this morning. Father, I pray they don't leave here hungry. Father, spiritually, I pray they leave here with something that they can chew on for a little while, something that they can draw close to and think and muse on and may it produce fruit in their life, God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless our church and bless this afternoon, get our pastor home safe. And God, I pray that you bring us back here tonight, Lord, that we might hear from you again. We love you and we need this stuff. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to give it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.